Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Amen. That is the name of our God, and never forget it. Far different from the other gods of the other religions. Jehovah, I am that I am. Amen. Open again with me tonight for just a moment to a verse that I started with this morning, Romans 15, 4. To see the Apostle Paul giving New Testament ministers and New Testament saints the instruction that what's in the Old Testament had a purpose. It's not to be forgotten, neglected, but it has a purpose for us. Romans 15, 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The things that were written aforetime in the other testament were written when they were written down. It wasn't just for that generation, but it was written down for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the stories that we see in the Old Testament might have hope. We looked at several of those this morning. We want to look at a few more this evening because we want to answer the question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And so when we face difficulties in our lives, we should remember that question. The Lord asked it. The Lord asked it of Abraham and Sarah if they believed that he could do what he said. And brethren, he came back at the time appointed. Nine months later, Sarah had a son. And she was an old, 90-year-old woman. And she had a son. And Abraham fathered that son and continued to do so for many, many years. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Let's talk about careers for a moment. I think of Joseph. Joseph's career, he had set his eyes on working for his father. His father loved him very much because he was the son of his favorite wife. And when we come over to the book of Genesis and we come to chapter 39, we find that Joseph had several setbacks, several severe career setbacks. <laughs> he was going to be one of the principal players in his father's sheep business. But what happened? The brothers were jealous and sold him as a slave into a foreign nation where he didn't know the language, didn't know anyone, and was just a slave being dealt by the Ishmaelites to the Egyptians. What a setback. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nope. What was his next job? He was hired as a servant into the house of Potiphar, captain of the guard for Pharaoh. Did he do well at that job? Amen. He rose quickly to a place where it says in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 6, and he, that is Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. He got an allowance. The captain of Pharaoh's guard got an allowance, and he got the allowance from Joseph, who gave him enough bread to eat. And the rest of all the assets were under Joseph's care because Joseph had what this foolish world calls the Midas touch. He had the hand of God with him. The Lord was with him, and everything he touched was blessed. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. So he's in his second career. He's the steward of the house of a rich man in Egypt. He has another serious setback. He's falsely accused of rape 
and he ends up in prison in a foreign nation. Reputation ruined now, resume ruined. Was the Lord with him? Amen. What position was, what was his next career? Prison management. And he ends up overseeing everything in the prison of the Egyptians because the, the head of the prison put everything in his hands because everything Joseph did turned out outstanding. He interprets dreams for a butler and a baker that were left in that prison by Pharaoh. And when he interprets the dream positively for the butler, the butler says, don't worry. He, he, he helps and comforts Joseph. When I get up there before Pharaoh, according to your interpretation, I'll remind him. And Joseph asked him to remember that he'd been there and to deliver him from his unjust prison stay. Did the butler remember? No. How many years are we talking about that the butler didn't remember? Two years. That's three careers. Is his career in prison management over? Yes. What's his new career? Ruler of Egypt. Now, I summarized it all because I want you to think about Joseph. Men sometimes have career setbacks. But from what should we do about it? Put our trust in the Lord. Fear him and obey him. Strip ourselves of all confidence and believe that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Right career military man? I'm referring to our brother Stephen. I hope you know what I mean. I want you to think about the career setbacks that poor Joseph had, but he ended up being the king of Egypt. And I love reading those words. Pharaoh was almost apologetic that once in a while he might have to be first in the nation. If you go read it, he says, only when I'm, Joseph, I really want to promote you. Only when I'm in that throne am I first. The rest of the time you're in charge. Because Pharaoh looked around as soon as he'd heard the interpretation of that dream and said, is there a man with a better spirit than Joseph that can take care of this nation? And with, Joseph was shrewd. In seven years, he, he stored up all that that nation could bring forth in seven years of plenty. And in the seven years of famine, he bought everything, including the Egyptian souls for Pharaoh. And he preserved the Lord's people alive. Joseph, were, there, were those a few serious career setbacks? Serious career setbacks. And the Lord was with him and blessed him abundantly. Turn to Psalm 78. Let me remind you of this one. Psalm 78. I would love to read Psalm 78 some Sunday morning, but I'm afraid that some of your legs might go to sleep standing that long. It's a wonderful psalm. It's one of those psalms. The first eight verses of Psalm 78 say, these things ought to be taught to our children and our children's children and the generation after them. And then it goes into a list of many of these events that I'm talking about. Right. But I want to show you how it ends up. Psalm 78. I want to show you some careers, a career. Verse 70, God chose David, also his servant, Psalm 78, 70, and took him from the sheepfolds. What was David's first career? Shepherd. Then he had a career as a harpist for King Saul. Then he was sent back home to take care of the sheep. Then he was made a man of war. Then he was chased around like a dog. Then he became king of Israel. Look at how the Bible describes it in three short verses. 
He chose David, also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Look at his job description. He followed the ewes that were great with young. Now does that sound like a strenuous job? A pregnant sheep, a pregnant ewe sheep being followed around by David to take care of them. They don't move very fast and there's David taking care of them but he ends up being a mighty man of valor and king of Israel when all of his brothers who appeared to be so much fitter for such a job were passed by. Because I want to tell you about David. You can read some of his thoughts on what kind of a shepherd he was, where his mind was when he was out there taking care of the sheep. It was on the Lord God Almighty. And he was the sweet psalmist of Israel, and he was writing those psalms and already learning the harp as a young man and praising the Lord. And the Lord blessed him abundantly. Oh, what about Daniel? Daniel was mutilated and hauled off into a foreign nation, put under a man who tempted him right off the bat with the king's table. He said, I won't eat that stuff. And when he was examined by Nebuchadnezzar, he was 10 times smarter than anyone else who was examined. I want to tell you something about Daniel. The Bible tells us in chapter 6 that he had a spirit without a flaw. A perfect spirit was in him. He made it through four different kings of the Babylonians, then Darius the Mede, and then Cyrus the Persian. Would you find me how many eunuchs made it through a transitional government that many times? Most kings would eliminate predecessors because they wanted men loyal to them. And the Bible wants us to know that Daniel continued all the way to the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Don't worry about career problems. There's a God in heaven. How about marriage? I want you to turn to a little book of four chapters, and you're going to have to figure it out. A little book of four chapters. Turn to it now, please. That has to deal with marriage problems, and that the Lord, nothing is too hard for the Lord. The book is Ruth. Amen. It follows Joshua and Judges. What nation was Ruth from? Moab. Was that a love nation? A beloved nation to Israel? A wicked nation. Was she a widow? Yes, she was a widow. Had she met with disappointment in her life? Yes. Her husband died? And her sister left her. Her sister went back to Moab, and she had to follow her mother-in-law back into Israel. But she did so. Look what it says in Ruth 2.2. And you know I love these verses right here. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nope. Do we know anything about the character of Ruth? Was it a good character? Amen. When her mother-in-law tried to dissuade her and convince her to stay in Moab, what did she say? Aren't they some of the most precious words in the Bible? They're in chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee. 
or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Till death do us part, are words promised by Ruth to Naomi, when Naomi was trying to convince her to stay in Moab. What character? Does the Lord have anything in store for women of that character? In verse 2 of chapter 2, in Ruth the Moabitess, why does the Lord want to remind us of that? We've, we're reading about Ruth here. We know she's a Moabitess. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. Ruth and Naomi need to eat. Naomi's older. Ruth is younger. Ruth says, well, there is something I can do. I can go glean. Is that a woman of a poor and contrite spirit? Willing to go glean? We've already seen her character. We're seeing more of it. But then verse 3, and she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Here's this great big field, <laughs> this, this great big field, and the field's divided up. Different men own it. And it was her hap. Now that's the Holy Spirit's word. What does that word mean? Does it mean it was her coincidence? Or is he playing with us for us to realize the sovereignty of God in his dispensation and providential care of Ruth. It was her hap. From a natural standpoint, it looked like she just accidentally, coincidentally, landed on this field. But the Lord was directing her. Amen. And it was her hap to land on the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Do you know that little Moabitess widow woman ended up marrying a rich man who loved her? And her grandson was David, king of Israel. And she is in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can find her a Moabitess in Matthew chapter 1. I know we've been there before, but do you know why these stories are here? Through comfort and patience of the scriptures to give us hope. Right. Every person should, every person, especially those concerned about marriage, should put their trust in this story. Why is this four chapter book in the Bible? that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. That's right. Amen. And it's very comforting. One more little girl we need to talk about, and she's got a few more chapters written about her, and I don't know why it's in the Bible either, except to comfort our hearts. She was an orphan. She was hauled captive by a foreign nation. She was raised by an uncle. She was in a place where she didn't know the language nor the culture and her God wasn't worshiped. She was in Persia and her name was Esther. Did God take care of her? The king of Persia fell in love with her and made her queen. 
That is the Lord we worship. Is anything too hard for the Lord? A little orphan girl, do you think that she often wondered about her life, losing her parents, losing her country, losing her language, losing her culture, losing her religion, having to be raised by an uncle? Then the Lord puts her on the throne of Persia, and she's loved by King Ahasuerus. That's the story of Esther. Are marriage problems too hard for the Lord? No, they are not. I appreciated what was said last Sunday night by Paul Crosby about the wild man of the Gadarenes, violently possessed by many devils. Are spiritual problems too hard for the Lord? When Jesus said, what is your name? To the demons that were worshiping him at his feet, what'd they say? Legion. Legion. We are many. Was the Lord able to deliver? Amen. And he did deliver. And that man wanted to be with Jesus so bad he tried to get on that boat to leave with Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus said, no, you go home and you publish and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. And you know what he did? He went and published it. And, and as we heard last Sunday night, all men marveled. Yeah. You know, there's blessings of children in this very congregation. Women who thought they might be barren, who have children. I look in the Bible and I see Sarah, who had a child past the age of childbearing. I see Rachel. I see Hannah. I see the woman of Shunem, a woman that took care of Elisha. And I see Elizabeth bearing John the Baptist. The Lord is able to handle children from their beginning in a woman who thinks she's barren. And then I see children raised up by parents who greatly feared the Lord. I see two parents in Egypt who read in the papers that there's a new law that's been passed, that every boy child is to be killed. And they take their little boy and keep him up as long as they can, but his crying starts to get too loud. So his mother puts him in a little basket and puts him in the bulrushes at the edge of the river. And she is trusting a, Lord, a God. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? She put her child in the Lord's hands. And if you do not put your children in the Lord's hands, your children are going to have great difficulty in life, and you're going to have great difficulty with them. Because the Lord can take care of them far better than we can. She put her child entirely in the Lord's hands. Who is he? Moses. Moses faithful in all his house, the greatest leader of Israel. God appeared to him face to face, Moses, because two parents, the Bible tells us this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, they're in the hall of faith for the way they treated their child. They put their trust in the Lord. They had faith. They believed that God was and that he was a rewarder of them that would diligently seek him. And they totally committed that child to the Lord. Hannah was given a child from the Lord, and what'd she do? She gave, it to me. she gave him back to the Lord. Amen. Didn't she enjoy seeing the evening news every night yep. as Samuel was described as the great leader of Israel? You know, the Lord spoke to that nation by Samuel over and over again, and she got to see it. And then we read about the Apostle Paul's favorite preacher in the New Testament because two women believe that nothing was too hard for the Lord. 
Lois, and Eunice that raised a little boy in the scriptures and trusted God to use him, and he was Paul's favorite man. Did you know that there's more dealings with that little widow woman of Zarephath? You know, we didn't read further in 1 Kings 17, but that little boy that she was going to build a fire for and they were going to eat a cake and then he, they were going to die together, that little boy died. But Elijah the prophet was able to go in and stretch himself a few times on that child and his life came back into him. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. That widow woman of Zidon was blessed abundantly by the Lord in her life. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. In 1 Samuel 23, we're long past David killing Goliath. He's been anointed king for many, many years. But he's not being treated like a king. He's being treated like a runaway slave. Saul's chasing him, trying to kill him. And in 1 Samuel 23, Saul has him cornered. So I want you to think about circumstantial problems. The circumstances of your life are too great to overcome. Verse 26, And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul, for Saul and his men compassed David. That means they were all around him. They had him enclosed and his men round about to take them. What do we do in circumstances like that when a man wants to kill you and he's got you completely surrounded? But there came a messenger unto Saul saying, haste thee and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Wherefore Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore they called that place Selah Hamalekoth, which is the division that Saul had to go through because he was torn between two choices, David or the Philistines. Now I want, to, I want you to remember that the Philistines would have made their decision to go to war with Israel long before David and Saul were on the same mountain. Who's in charge of all those events? The Lord is. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And David went up from thence and dwelt in strongholds at Engadai. Now those circumstances were horrible. He was hemmed in on every side. He was compassed about. He was surrounded. And the men were there to kill him. And all of a sudden the Lord intervenes. Saul, you need to get back home and take care of international business rather than your little domestic problem with David. And the Lord saved him. Come over to Acts chapter 27. And let me remind you of something that I taught you a few months ago. When Paul was on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and this tempestuous wind was not Bertha or Hugo or anything else like that, it was Eurocladon. How many days did this storm last? 14 days. Did they ever see the sun during those 14 days? Do you know what Luke thought about the storm at the end of 14 days? He said about, about himself, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. That is Acts 27 and verse 20. But the Apostle Paul believed that nothing was too hard for the Lord. And he said in verse 25, 
which is a verse I gave to you from the 27th chapter of Acts that I hope would comfort you then and I hope will now. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. The Lord appeared to him that night and said they're going to be delivered. And he broke, he stood on the deck of that ship with 218 Roman soldiers and other sailors, and he said, be of good cheer. And he broke open the remaining food they had and started to eat in the middle of this Eurocladon storm in which they hadn't seen light for 14 days. And they had thrown everything they could, the tackling and stuff, over the edge of the ship in order to survive. Be of good cheer. I believe God. That's a life of faith. Without He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And I want to show you Paul seeking the Lord. It's in verse 21. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them, and then he spoke to them. Long abstinence. Paul fasted and prayed, and the Lord heard him, and the Lord blessed him. Is anything too hard for the Lord? All those men were cast up on shore. They suffered through a shipwreck. Paul said, be of good cheer. Why don't you go ahead and eat with me? We need a little bit of strength. Nothing's going to happen to us, but we are going to have a shipwreck, and we're all going to have to make it to shore, but not a hair of your heads will be harmed because the Lord was with them. Oh, there's so many examples in the Bible, and I have to look at this list and pick a few. How about some sin problems? What if you've lived your whole life in sin? Can God have mercy on you at the end of a life of sin? We know about the thief on the cross. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. But come to 1 Kings 21 so that I can show you the words that we often refer to about Ahab. It is a shame that our flesh and Satan and the world together can keep us from seeking the Lord with our whole heart. Because if we were to seek the Lord with our whole heart, there is so much forgiveness with the Lord, even for a man like Ahab. Look at what verse 25 of 1 Kings 21 says about this king. There was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. But when he hears about judgment coming on the nation, it came to pass when Ahab heard these words, that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. He changed his lifestyle. No longer was he bold and aggressive. He went softly and was begging God and spent time laying on the deck with sackcloth next to his skin. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. His sons were judged later, but God withdrew that judgment from Ahab because Ahab did the things that are described in verse 27. There is forgiveness with the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No man, 
No woman can get herself in a situation where God can't forgive sin. This is one of the very worst characters in the entire Bible. And this is put here that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. This is for our learning that there is forgiveness with the Lord. I read to you Romans 9, 22 through 24 this morning, that we might humble ourselves more often before the Lord, because if it's not for his choice to save us, we are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction and are going to suffer eternal judgment. How many times today, or how many times tomorrow, if the Lord tarries, are you going to say to the Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Even Ahab humbled himself. But do you know what? We're too busy. Our flesh is too proud. The world doesn't know anything about this, so we get no reminders, and Satan will do everything in his power to keep us from ever uttering that short little prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because do you know what Satan knows about the Lord? He's full of mercy to repenting sinners, except to Satan. He's full of mercy. So when we think about sin problems, is there anything too hard for the Lord? No. I look at Samson down there in that hole, grinding grain for the Philistines, them making fun of him. But his last prayer was answered. Lord, give me my strength back one time. Let me avenge myself of my two eyes on these Philistines who are making fun of me. And he asked for that little boy to lead him to the two pillars that upheld that temple in which there were so many people making sport of him. 3,000 were in the balcony watching, and he tore that thing down, and more died at his death than during his life. Even though he'd been a fool for years and years and many times, God had mercy upon him and let him do what he wanted to accomplish at the end of his life. Do you ever fear about praying for something because you think you're asking for too much? Now, I know about some of you because you've told me, well, I, I'm just not really qualified for that job, or I don't really deserve anything that nice. And I'm not here like one of those tele-evangelists to tell you that God has purposed that all of us should live a rich life in a bed of roses. But I am here to tell you that you have not because you ask not. Was Elisha afraid to ask for twice the spirit of Elijah? Did, did we see any timidity in Elisha's prayer for him to have twice the spirit of Elijah? That is boldness. There was no timid approach in prayer. He was bold, and we ought to be bold. What about Joshua in Joshua chapter 10 when he's winning a great victory and he realizes he's running out of time? The sun's going to set, and I'm not going to get to kill them all. Is he... Have you ever heard his prayer? I mean, who has the courage to pray, Lord, stop the sun? But Joshua did, and the Lord stopped the sun. Prayer problems. Did Abraham resign himself weakly when God said he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? He heard those words, and he thought, my nephew's in Sodom. I've got to do something about this. And he went, and he started with 50 with the Lord. You should hear him reason with the Lord. He says this, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Is the Lord going to kill the righteous with the wicked? You mean you'd kill righteous men along with wicked men. He's reminding the Lord of his perfect nature. And then he says, What if there are 50 righteous souls found 
in Sodom. Would you kill 50 righteous with the wicked? The Lord says, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. And he works it all the way down to 10. That is boldness in prayer. Are we that bold in prayer or do we go timidly? I fear for all of us that we go too timidly many times. If we're walking with the Lord and we truly love him, and we've cleaned our life up and are pleasing to him, we ought to be able to go to him and expect great things. Those great men did, and the Lord blessed them. How about an enemy? So you've got an enemy. What do you do about your enemies? Is the Lord able to take care of your enemies? Why did Jacob wrestle with the Lord all night long? What was he in such earnest need about that he wrestled all night? Because the last time he remembered, which was 20 years earlier, Esau had said, when, I, when my father, when the morning is past for our father's death, I'm going to kill you for stealing my birthright. 20 years later, Jacob hears about Esau coming with 400 armed men. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What does Jacob have? 12 sons under the age of 20 and a bunch of wives and a, and a great and great wealth. And I don't, I, I'm, I'm summarizing the story. What happens? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Esau runs up to him and kisses him and hugs his neck and says, you don't have to give me any of these presents. Let me accompany you back to our homeland. The, the most gracious man, the friendliest exchange that you can read about was between Esau and Jacob because the Lord totally changed his heart. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Turn to 2 Samuel 16. 2 Samuel 16. For an enemy that David feared greatly. His name was Ahithophel. He was a counselor to David. And when David had to flee Jerusalem because of the sedition of Absalom, Ahithophel stayed and became Absalom's counselor. This man was wise. Listen to what it says about him in 2 Samuel 16, 23. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. That is a formidable enemy. That is a man, very intelligent and wise, and a great enemy to David. David is now out in the woods, running from Jerusalem. Absalom is in charge of the nation, and he wants to go destroy his father. Two men. David sends back a man, another counselor named Hushai. He sends him back to Jerusalem, and Absalom calls his counselors before him, and he says, Ahithophel, what should I do? Ahithophel says, give me a few thousand men. I will chase your father right now. The people are scared that are with him. They don't know where they are. They don't know what they're doing. I will catch him before they have a chance to prepare the defenses, and I'll destroy them. Excellent. He describes it in detail in here. But David had sent another man back named Hushai. And Absalom said, Hushai, what do you think we ought to do? And Hushai said, you're forgetting your father. He's a mighty man of valor. If you are to chase him right now and a few of your people were to get killed, all the men that are with David would be encouraged in their hearts. Remember, they're mighty men of valor. Do you know what they've accomplished in their lifetimes? 
and it would encourage them, and they would defeat you. What you need to do is send to all the corners of Israel and unite such a large host that it would be like the sand which is by the seashore that you can then pursue after David. And when you find him, even if he were to get himself into a city with walls, you can tie ropes around the city and drag the whole thing into a river. Now, isn't that precious language? But that's Hushai trying to buy time for David. And there's a whole psalm and there's a whole prayer of David praying for God to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel because David knew that Ahithophel was the greatest counselor there had ever been. Ahithophel gives wise counsel. Hushai gives counsel. Absalom hears them both. And Absalom chose the counsel of Hushai and gathered all of Israel together, which gave David the time he needed to get farther away. The Lord delivered David from the counsel of Ahithophel, and I want you to see how the Lord used Absalom choosing Hushai over Ahithophel to affect poor Ahithophel. Verse 23 of the next chapter, 2 Samuel 17, 23. If you want to read some excellent speeches Read the speeches of Ahithophel and Hushai about their advice to Absalom in a matter of war. They're both excellent. Ahithophel's was more correct, but God blessed Hushai's to the salvation of David. And here's what happened to Ahithophel. Verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order, and hanged himself, and died, and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Did God defeat the counsel of Ahithophel? The poor man had never had anyone go against his advice. And to have Absalom go against his advice was too much for him. He went into a depression, went home, put his house in order, hanged himself, and was dead. The Lord, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the Lord delivered David. Do you all, you all know the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer? 600 men are with King Saul. There's a, an army of the Philistines is gathered together to war against Israel. Jonathan's bored. He says to his armor bearer, let's sneak out of camp and do something. He goes over and he finds a garrison of the Philistines. And he says, are you with me? It doesn't matter to the Lord whether there's many or few. And what an armor bearer. Wherever you turn, I'll turn with you. That is an armor bearer. That is esprit de corps. That is loyalty. Where you turn, I'll turn. You ought to read it in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And so Jonathan reveals himself to the Philistines, and they ask him to come up. They're in a, they're in a high garrison, and Jonathan has to crawl hand over hand up to these Philistines, but he knows the Lord's with him. And when he gets to the top, he has to crawl over the edge to get to these Philistines, and he starts to, to wail on them with his sword, with his armor bearer with him. The Bible says, in a half acre of ground, they killed 20 men, and then the Lord sent a quaking into the whole army of the Philistines so that they all just melted away. Two men, really only one man, Jonathan, with the courage to go knowing, and the point that I'm on right now are, there is no such thing as odds against the Lord. The greater the odds in a situation, the greater the glory God gets. And Jonathan understood that. He said, it doesn't matter whether there's many or few. 
Let's take on these Philistines. And he did. You know that story. I want to give you another one. This is the last one for the evening. Look at Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. All of these accounts that God has given us were written that we through patience and comfort might grow in hope so that whatever difficulties we're facing will have hope because there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Judges, chapters 6 and 7 are about a man named Jeroboam. Do you all know who Jeroboam is without looking at your Bibles? It's my favorite name of this man. He has another name, Gideon. Seven years, the Midianites have come into Israel with a huge host and destroyed all the agricultural product. So the, the people were starving. They were hiding in caves and living in the mountains for seven years because they were worshiping false gods. An angel comes to Gideon and says to him, Almighty man of valor, God has chosen you to be the man to deliver the people of Israel. Gideon doesn't believe it. He doesn't think very highly of himself. I mean, at the moment, he was threshing wheat behind a wine press to hide the agricultural product from the Midianites so that he could keep his family living. That's a lesson for times if they ever get hard in our country and we're not allowed to provide for our families. The Bible teaches us that we will provide for our families. And that's in Judges chapter 6. He was hiding his production from the government, the de facto government that was in place at that time, and that was the Midianites. But that's, that's another subject, and I've dealt with that in its proper place. But I want, the, the angel of the Lord said, you're the man God's chosen. And Gideon didn't really believe it. He said, well, you know, I appreciate the message. Will you stay here long enough for me to fix a meal for you? And he runs and gets a kid, and he gets some flour together and bakes a cake, and he brings it back to the man who waited for him. He's an angel of God. And the angel says, put it here on these rocks. And the angel took a staff that was in his hand and reached down and touched that meat and that cake, and it all went up as a sacrifice into heaven, and the angel disappeared, and Gideon knew he had just met with the Lord. And the Lord had assigned him to lead Israel. But Gideon was a man like many of us. He was a little timid about taking on such a task of an army of a nation that is living in caves who hasn't eaten, and they're going to take on Midianites, who the Bible says were like the sand which is by the seashore when they came in. 500,000, a million, we don't know, we're just told, so numerous they were like the sand which is by the sea. Next assignment for Gideon. Gideon, your father's a Baal worshiper. I want you to go tear down the altar that your father's made to Baal, cut down the tree of the groves that he's built around it, and take his second bullock, the young one, the strong one, and offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. Gideon takes 10 men and does it at night because he's afraid. He does it at night. He breaks down the altar of Baal. He cuts down all the trees. He uses the trees for the wood to offer a sacrifice to God with his father's prized bullock. This, I'm sorry about these details. This is my favorite, this is, this is my favorite part about Gideon and why he got the name Jeroboam. In the morning, his father's name is Joash. He was a worshiper of Baal. In the morning, the, the men of the city come to the gate and to the door, 
and call Joash out and say, we have figured out that your son tore down the altar of Baal last night, cut down the groves, offered a bullock to the Lord. Bring him out here so that we can kill him. Second miracle in Gideon's life, the Lord converts his father on the spot. On the spot, his father, who had been a worshiper of Baal, says this. <laughs> I love these words. Joash said unto all that stood against him, here's all the men of the city standing against him saying, bring out your son so we can kill him. Will you plead for Baal? Are you men here pleading for Baal? Are you men here to defend Baal? Will you save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while it is still morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Why are you here to pick on my son? If Baal's a god, he should have been able to defend himself. Let Baal plead for himself if he's a god. And the Bible goes on to say in Judges chapter 6, verse 32, Therefore on that day he called him Jeroboam, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. His father renamed him Jeroboam. Let Baal plead against him if he did something so horrible. If Baal's a god, then Baal should be able to take care of himself. Let's go on with the life of Gideon. God's called him to deliver the people. Those are two miracles. Do you know what Gideon says? If you truly want me to lead the people into battle, I'm going to leave this fleece, a chunk of wool, here on the ground. I want it to be wet tomorrow morning, and I want all the ground around it to be dry. He gets up in the morning. The ground is dry all the way around it. He picks up the fleece, and the Bible says he wrung water out of it to fill a bowl. Third miracle. Tomorrow morning, I want the fleece dry and it wet all around it. So he gets up in the morning and the Lord has spit, put dew all around on the grass and the fleece is dry. This man has seen four miracles from God in his call. He's not responding quite like Jehu did. You know, Jehu didn't even get a miracle except the word. God has anointed you and he, he jumped into his chariot and took off and wrecked havoc on the, the kings of Judah and Israel. But Gideon here is asking for more and more confirmation. And brethren, do you know why Gideon's special? Because we're often like that. But I want to tell I got to tell you now, Gideon made it to Hebrews chapter 11. Gideon's in Hebrews 11. But the Lord's mercy, so is Sarah. Is that comforting? Abraham laughed, too, about having a son so old, and he's in Hebrews 11. Four miracles. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Jeroboam, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him, he has an army, 32,000, to go against maybe a million, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. The Lord looked at his army of 32,000. Now here's a timid man with 32,000 looking at an army of maybe 500,000, maybe a million. 
and the Lord says it's too big. Now this is a man who's needed four confirmations already to go into battle. The Lord says, I want you to ask them which ones would like to go home. Anybody here afraid? You can go home. 22,000 take off, leaving him an army of 10,000. That's in verse 3. Verse 4, do you know what the Lord said to him? The people are yet too many. <clears throat> I like this because don't you look at your circumstances and problems sometimes and say, the odds are just too great. For me to pray for this is to ask too much of the Lord. Do you know what the Lord likes to do? He likes to make the odds like that. Gideon, take your 10,000 men down to the river. The ones that scoop the water up in their hand and lap it like a dog are one group. The people that, the men that kneel down on their knees and drink the water from the stream are another group. Keep the ones that lap it from their hands. 300. He's now got an army of 300 looking at a host of a million, and he's Gideon. What would you do, brethren? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Then the Lord's kindness comes in. He says, Gideon, take your trusted servant and go down there and put your ear up next to a tent of the Midianites. So Gideon sneaks down to the edge of this great host and he puts his ear up against a tent. And a man has just woken up inside and said he had a dream. I had a dream. This great big bale of hay came tumbling down the hill and hit our tent and flattened it. What does that mean? The other man said, that's easy. Gideon's going to come and kill us all tonight. <laughs> is anything too hard for the Lord? That is the story of Gideon. It's here in Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7. Gideon went back. He took a trumpet in one hand, a torch in the other hand, and he went into battle shouting, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The sword of the Lord and the Midianites rose in the middle of the night and killed each other. And then those timid Israelites came out of the hills where they had gone to hide, joined his 300, and they finished the battle. But the battle was the Lord's. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. But notice which sword is first, brethren. And that's what we wanted to learn today. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Let us put our trust in this God who has delivered individual men, even men like Gideon who were timid. The Lord can do it and will do it. If the Lord is able, if nothing is too hard for the Lord, then the only issue left is, does he want to help us? 1 Peter chapter 5 and 7 says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Luke 11 says that if you as earthly fathers, sinful fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more do I as your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to you? He says no earthly father, if a child asks a fish, is going to give him a stone. No earthly father, if a child asks for a piece of bread, is going to give him a scorpion. And he says I'm much better than that. 
And so I tell you that he is a much better father than you are towards your own children. And you know that if your own children asked you for something, you would help them get it. Amen. He does much better. He definitely wants to please us. If we ask things according to his will and are obeying him in our lives. The, as, and I said earlier, there's a verse in the Bible, James chapter 4, ye have not because ye ask not. Amen. Or you ask to consume it on your lusts. But if you're in a need to bring that need to the Lord and ask for an answer, it's there. The Lord wants to give it. How do we measure up to the character of the people that we've studied today? It's so simple. Obey God. Brother Jim and I laugh about how any series on any subject, child training, Bible economics, whatever the case might be, do you know what the first rule is in all cases? Obey, obey God. He wants us to obey him. In Asa, in the life of Asa, 2 Chronicles chapter 15 told us about the great revival that Asa wrought. But chapter 16 tells us that he went and hired a foreign nation to fight his next battle instead of trusting the Lord. And the Lord came to him and said, why did you forget that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those that are walking with him? Obedience is first. And then we should strip ourselves of all self-confidence and sound like Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. I do not have the strength. I do not know what to do. Brother Stephen mentioned it tonight in his thanksgiving. I do not know what to do. Our eyes wait on thee. Amen. I don't have the strength. I don't know what to do. My eyes are on thee. And that works because that is the spirit of the poor man in, in Isaiah 66. Poor, contrite spirit who trembles at the word of God. I will look unto that man. I will look unto that man. Expect great things from God and claim them by bold prayer. Remember what Elijah told that widow woman? Bring not a few. Right. Don't go into prayer just thinking of a few little blessings. Bring not a few. Bring many. She filled her house with those vessels, and they were filled with oil. And then, as we've learned last Sunday and today, once the Lord delivers you in the day of trouble when you call upon him, glorify him. Amen. That's it. Obey God. Strip yourself of all self-confidence and put your trust in the Lord. Expect great things from God. And then prepare to glorify him. And if you want to start glorifying him first, you'll be most like the psalmist. Because he would do that. And the Lord delivered David. And on his deathbed, David had the most comforting words any man has ever been given. That his house would sit on the throne of, Israel, of Judah forever and ever, and his son would be the Lord Jesus Christ, even though David's house had been quite a mess. And David said, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. This is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. That's a good way to die with the Lord at your right hand. May the Lord bless us to answer the question that he asked of Abraham and Sarah by the way we live. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No. 
let us go into this week if the Lord tarries one day at a time trusting him that there is nothing too hard for him in all in whatever problems might face us may the Lord bless the preaching of his word Amen.